I don't think there's anything there except for actually animosity. For the, uh, not Phil to Tiger, because I think Phil genuinely is grateful for all that Tiger's done for golf, i.e. raise purses immeasurably. But I think Tiger has no use for Phil. Put another log on the fire Nobody here is getting tired Hello, welcome back to another Fire Drill podcast. Uh, this is Alan Shipnuck. I have Michael Bamberger sitting to my immediate left here in the living room of our rental house in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Michael, welcome. Good to see you as always. <laughs> here in Tulsa, we haven't been here in a while. <laughs> I know. And uh, on the line with us is John Hawkins, a, a legend of the golf beat, one of the big dogs covering the tour in the 2000s and beyond. And uh, Johnny, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, guys. We Back won. in the day, if you were a German, Hawk was there. It was a big tournament. That's right. I mean, that was... Williamsburg, St. Jude. <laughs> you use them all. All the fifth majors. I mean, it's fun It's fun to, to think about those old days when, you know, we were at SI and you were at Golf World, and there was really a sense of competition. Like, people don't understand how competitive journalism is, and you never wanted to get beat by the other guy. And you guys had, you guys had Tim Rosefort... There was there was there was a lot of uh, of energy on that beat, like trying to try not. You had Bob Verdi, you know. We had Gerdy and Ben Sickle. Like there was a lot of talent there, and nobody wanted to pick up their magazine a few days later and realize, dang it, I got beat on this one. So those were those were fun times. You know what they were. It was a pleasure to read you guys. Pleasure to read you and the range of talent that you guys you guys had, and Vince Sickle and various others. And the thing about Hawk was. Much like Gary Smith's, he would ask anybody anything. He mm-hmm. said to Curtis when he came off the course at Pinehurst, uh, whatever year that was, I guess when Payne won, he said, the first question out of the box, Curtis, will you ever win again? Well, John, <laughs> that's kind of a pointed question. <laughs> we want an answer. No. Nope. We had to spend a lot of money to compete with Sports Illustrated, I'll tell you that. Uh, thankfully, it wasn't any of mine. But yeah, it was, those were fun days. Those were fun days. Magazines were a, were a beautiful thing while they lasted, but they last no more for the most part. But anyway. Yeah. It is funny to think about. We would send our stories off. Then you'd have to wait three or four days to actually get the physical magazine to see what the other right. guys wrote. Like, imagine now. Like, I feel like if I post a story an hour and a half after a term ends, it feels like I'm late. Like the immediacy right. has changed so much. It's changed our jobs too. But, but. that was weirdly the pleasure yes. of the whole thing was, you know, waiting on it. You know, I mean, it was legendary to say, you know, wait on Jenkins or wait on, on Herb Wind. But, you know, even in our day to wait on Riley, wait on Garrity, wait on Hawk and see what he'd write. It was part of the fun of the thing that the lack of immediacy was actually part of the greatness of it. <laughs> I mean, it's hard. It would be hard for a young person to actually understand what we're talking about. But it really is true. You waited for that magazine to come. And it was part of the fun. Yeah. And it, Don't it, you think, Hawk? Yeah. I I certainly enjoyed those days. I didn't have any problem with the weight. Well, we didn't know better. Big, we didn't know otherwise. Right, and I I wasn't a big fan of being uh, of covering the tournament after say a major and having to go find the magazines. They'd often be sitting in the pro shop in these bundles, <laughs> uh, and that would be the only way I would get to to read the piece because there was really no internet until what around two thousand. Mm-hmm. I mean, I know it came along a lot before long before that but uh 
I got, anyway, I got I'm, my first email address in 1998. I, I know that. Yeah, for I think fact. that's when I got what, mine what, too. What, AOL, Time Time Inc. was you know a partner of AOL at the times, and they assigned us email addresses. And mine was uh, M Bamberger zero two two four. And Shipnick says to me, he says, you know, you can probably do something and shorten that. And I said to him, yeah, this email thing, it's going to be a fad. <laughs> I'm still stuck. I'm still stuck with mbamberger0224 at aol.com. <laughs> Way to read the tea leaves, Michael. <laughs> yeah. But so for, for this conversation, I, I want to start by by getting in, into one um, Eldrick Taunt Woods because he's going to be a, a huge force at this tournament. Like, Tiger's press conferences are now events. His practice rounds are now events. I mean, the crowds that are out there following him used to be, you know, come Thursday, everyone would tune in to Tiger because you had to. But it's like now the second he steps on the grounds, I, mean, I guess because it's perishable, we know the end could come at any moment and people yeah. just want to reach out and, and touch history and feel like they're part of it. But, uh, you know, you, you were there for all of Tiger's greatest wins, Hawk, and you had, you had a lot of access to him. And uh, I guess for you this evolution of tiger from the, this hard-ass competitor to now this beloved elder statesman and the innumerable comebacks like when the grand sweep of tiger's career what what moments stand out to you that you know either on the golf course or little stolen moments you shared with him oh my god i could take us for an hour but i'll spare you i i think that the the relationship i had with with woods was pretty good because he didn't like Tim Rosefort, uh, and he didn't like a lot of guys. And I guess he trusted me. He tested me plenty, as uh, as the anecdotes in your wonderful book will test. Uh, Are you speaking of Phil? Know, uh, actually, uh, I d- very different kind of relationship with Phil, much like Allen's, by the way. But uh, uh, I love the book, as as you guys know, and uh, recently wrote. I remember Tiger, remember the WGC in Atlanta, in Woodstock, Georgia, like 2005. Uh, it was a, it was the one that was started in Spain and ended up in about, I think it ended up in like Iceland or something. It was, <laughs> it moved so often before it finally went defunct. And I remember Tiger coming up to me afterward, after he played around and he said, Hawk, oh, come here, come here. And he drags me over and he kind of, he pulls me into a private area. He goes, I, man, I read that article you wrote the other day. It was so funny. And I was taken aback. I'd never had Woods uh, respond to anything I'd ever written on him or anybody else. And this wasn't really about him. It was just one of these potpourri deals, kind of, a, you know, one-offs with the bada-bings at the end of each, uh, mm-hmm. at the end of each graph. And it, that, that sticks out because it showed me about something about Tiger that I really didn't know. I, I think he, he, he didn't like to be bothered at majors, as you guys know. He'd come in and do his thing. As for, as for the here and now, not only is he perishable, but he's, he's really become, you know, this is kind of the ultimate comeback for him. Although I still think the 2019 Masters was his 86 Masters, much oh, yeah. like maybe maybe Phil's 21 PGA may turn out to be sort of the coup de gras, uh, whatever you want to call it. I don't think he has anything left to prove. That said, I think he could factor this week. If he's if he's only taken one day off between the Masters and PGA, he's got to be in pretty good shape competitively heading in. Yeah, you know, going back to that 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 moment where. 
you know, Tiger dapped you up for that story. Like at, at his root, he's a golf nerd and he, you know, he loves, mm -hmm. he loves the game. He loves to read about the game. He loves to talk about the game. He, he venerates the history. So I'm not surprised that he was, he was pouring over some random article in golf world because it, he's kind of this all knowing, all seeing, um, you know, figure in my mind, like he, he doesn't miss anything. Now he, he won't all often admit it, but I feel like he right. was, he was always watching and he was always reading and, um, and this underrated part of, of Tiger's persona, like he doesn't miss much. And tell me, Hawk. Remember, go ahead, Hawk. Do you remember? Do you remember the uh, golf trip we went on to Ireland? What was that? With, was Jaime on that trip? No, no it, was, it, was, it was me it, and me and Janella, uh, Alan. It was Bistro. It was Bistrom was the force, wasn't it? We we brought Bistrom. Okay, <laughs> that, might not have been our best that. call. <laughs> We'll leave that alone for the masses. Uh, I remember seeing Tiger later on that trip in in the dining room at one of the those fine places we were sponging a free room from. And uh, Tiger, it was early in the morning. It was like 7 a.m. And Tiger had this stack of clips, like had to be media stuff. I mean, I, I, I gingerly approached him uh, after I'd finished breakfast. And at a time that didn't look like I'd be bothering him. I always tried to tiptoe my way over there, hoping he'd see me and either tell me to, you know, GFY uh, or uh, come on over. And uh, yeah, he, you can't be that famous and, and that, and even remotely clueless. He had to keep up on everything. But anyway, I, I remember that that was Duval was on that trip. They were, yes, they were, yes. and they had a helicopter and, it was Duval. It was 2002 because Duval had the Claret Jug. He was on. They yeah. were. He was going to return it the next week as defending champ. And it was. We were packing up our rooms, and it, his. It was in this wooded crate, and it was outside his room. And I was just walking through this courtyard, and for a split second, I thought about stealing it as kind of a joke. And <laughs> could you imagine the panic that would have set off if Duval had lost the, the oldest trophy in golf? Like, and like we could have just kept it for a few days and. Like had a little fun with it, but I chickened out to my everlasting regret because I remember that they were, they, they had was it uh I think we we're at the K Club is that where we were? Uh, yeah, it sounds right. I think yeah. Uh... Hey, hey Hawk, T Tiger was so uh, rather Tim was so fair with everybody. W what was Tiger's thing with him? What why what why did why did he even have a beef with Tim in the first place? Well, Michael, I think the the problem Tiger had wasn't just with Tim but with John Strage and. Anybody else who made a dime off of Tiger's being, off his likeness, uh, and those guys wrote books on Tiger. Right. And for whatever reason, Tiger took extreme umbrage to that. He didn't want people right. making any money off of his life story. Right. Strady was the first. You know, Jaime eventually kind of fell out of favor with him. And I'm sure I did at some point, although I never wrote a book on him. Um, well, Jaime, Jaime Diaz, I mean, he was a co-author on, on The Big Miss with Hank Haney. And, right, that's, yes, and that's what So I could understand why they might've been upset because it's some sort of unspoken code about the player-caddy relationship is like, is like, is it like a client privilege sort of thing? Even though I'm sure we'd all disagree, but I know that was Tiger's take, but. I mean, Strege's book was so affectionate. It was really the first biography, and he had a, he had, right. he was writing for the Orange County Register, and he just knew the family well. And 
like I always think that's one of the best Tiger books there is. It's hard to imagine they were upset about that. And then Rosafort, like he he did it in like 2000. I mean, Tiger's he's right. He was like the biggest athlete in the world coming out of that season, and it, it's so myopic. Like both those guys helped burnish Tiger's legend, and they helped they helped get fans excited about him. They helped fill in the gaps on his story, like. Tiger was making enough money. Why would he begrudge, you know, Tim Rosafort a small advance on a on a golf book? Like, it, to me, it's so bizarre and telling. Well, do, you, do, you, do you know the story about uh, about Tim covering uh, Tiger and Earl at Newport at the uh, second USAM? Uh, it depends what story you're talking about. Enlighten me, partner. <laughs> well, the part I'm trying to get you started on is uh, is. <laughs> Earl lifting the trophy at, at the at when, when it was all over, when after Tiger had defeated defeated Marucci for a second USM. When he said that my son will win fourteen major championships, that was part of it. You, can you fill us in on the rest, Huck? Or maybe you don't know it. I imagine you might, or maybe you don't. I want didn't to talk cover about that it. tournament. That that was before I I was still getting told to to uh, perform some anatomical impossibilities from people like Bobby Bonilla. Uh-huh. and uh, Roberto Alam. I was still covering baseball. Hey, Hawk, I've seen Bobby Bonilla in recent years and those anatomical things that you're talking about. He can't even think about him. He's so large. So <laughs> who's getting the last laugh here? Anyway, just, just to briefly finish up my own little self, uh, you know, I was trying to wind you up, but I didn't realize that. In the, it's Doesn't part, take much. Yeah, you know, this is part of the legend of, of Rosa Ford and, and Tiger, and this would only be interesting to the three of us and, you know, uh, maybe uh, Van Sickle, if he's listening. Um but so Tim's been covering Tiger for a while. You know this chapter in verse, don't you, where I'm going? I, I do. So you I, not even bother? Michael, you're eight miles down the road. You got to finish. Right. You got to Now you got to finish. Parker. Okay. Uh, that's a Detroit thing, eight miles. I know. Here. Okay. So, <laughs> uh, so I don't know the exact quote. I was there myself. I think the quote goes like this. He lists, or lifts the trophy and says, I hope Bobby Jones is spinning in his grip. I hope Bobby Jones is spinning in his grave knowing this trophy is going to a black man's home for another year, but a little bit more profane than that. Anyway, Tim's got it somewhere deep in the story, but he's using it. And the SI editors took it and, you know, period, new graph. He's going to win 14 or period, new paragraph. And either it was the kicker or it was way up high in the story. It was one extreme or the other. You know, Bobby Jones kissed my ass, blah, blah, blah. This trophy is going to a black man's home for another, for another year. And, of course... Tiger and Earl, but probably Earl. Tiger probably thought it was funny. Earl hated it, and I think that was the beginning of the end for for Tim with with the Woodses. Even though he went out of his way to be so so fair and and scrupulous uh, with them, and reported with a lot of integrity. What's amazing is that Tim got the same treatment as Charlie Pierce, and Charlie Pierce completely threw Tiger under the bus. I mean, there was no middle ground. You were either. Uh, Tiger would either talk to you or he he loathed you, and uh, it wasn't the process wasn't quite fair. But then, that well, is very very. World. Al and I have talked about this many times. Uh, that is very telling, and that is telling about his whole thing. Or it's either you're either on Tiger's right. team or you're off Tiger's team, and or there is off. no other area to be. And of course, we can't be on a team, but a lot of people can. His competitors, you know, Zach Johnson can't be on Team Tiger. He's not Tiger's enemy, but. He's trying to beat Tiger, too, and if he's not going to beat him, he's going to try to make you know the best check he can. But Tiger cannot see the world that way, and of course, I think it comes out of a, a military perspective, and it was very, very, very effective for him. But now ti- this new Tiger is like, oh, yeah, I miss having dinner with the guys. Like, what? I mean, have you ever in your life seen Tiger eating out anywhere? You've seen everybody. 
You've seen Ernie, you've That's, seen John Daly, you've seen everybody. You've never seen Tiger. I've never seen Tiger. Have you ever seen Tiger eating dinner out? No, not once. Have you, Huck? No. Ever? I never did. Yeah. I, I never saw him eating a meal with anybody but himself, except for the memorable exchange at, at, in the Dallas, uh, in the Las Colinas dining room that Alan uh, featured, well, uh, wrote in the book. When but, Phil came schmaltzing up with his tray, like some nerd in the eighth in, in the junior high cafeteria. Can I join you guys? And then he sits down. Tiger, ti that's what made another thing I loved in Alan's book, the the banter between Mickelson and Woods at the 2012 steak dinner, which I had heard. Um, I think that's really when it kind of started turning around, the whole Mickelson-Woods I don't know if it's a friendship. That's probably too strong a word. Tiger's ability to tolerate Phil <laughs> uh, yeah. seemed well, to increase after he'd gone through his first wave of problems in the early 2010s. Not to mention, and I, I kind of knew it at the time, but I'd forgotten all some of the details until I got into the, into the, the weeds on this book, was that there was that period where Phil started beating Tiger with regularity and really started in... in in 08, 09, and for about five years, and of course the scandal changed Tiger's trajectory, we all know that, you know, but uh, Phil was beating Tiger every time they were paired together, and it, and it kind of culminates at Pebble Beach in 2012 when it's mm -hmm. really the worst beatdown of Tiger's career, and Phil shoots 64 and Tiger shoots 75, and Phil just blows him off the golf course, so I think even in, in those victories, Phil still bit his tongue, he knew it was not a good idea, to, to taunt Tiger. And I think that increased Tiger's respect for Phil, that he beat him, but he also kept it classy. And and that, that definitely shifted that dynamic a little bit between them. And um, I, I think that's how, you, that's how you'd get Tiger's respect is by, by not backing down. And and there was a period where Phil retreated, but you know, kind of later in the relationship, he started giving it back to Tiger. I think that helped their relationship, strangely. If they, if they have anything like a real friendship, you couldn't prove it by Tiger's press conference this week where he says, quote, I haven't reached out to him. I mean, here's Phil, probably the lowest period of his of his life that we would that we would know about anyway. And uh, if Tiger, go ahead. Huh? No, no. And, if, and if, if, if he is some sort of friend, if, especially in this day of texting, I hope you're OK. If you want to talk, let me know. That's easy as could be. And. Uh, he evidently hasn't done that by 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 what by what he's describing. So, I think that's very telling. I, I I'm loath to disagree with you on anything, Hawk. But uh, in this instance, I think we've been, I think we've been fed a story by both sides. You know, leading up to that Las Vegas thing between the two of them. I don't think there's anything there except for actually animosity for the uh, not Phil to Tiger because I think Phil genuinely is grateful for all that Tiger's done for golf, i.e., raise purses immeasurably, but. I think Tiger has no use for Phil. Well, I mean, it's, yeah, it's a very interesting situation. Sorry, guys. I, I, you remember, I mean, 20 years, 22 years ago, it was Tiger beefing about the tour using his likeness and, and all the very uh, same proprietary uh, ownership things that Phil complained about at the first stage of his, uh, you know, grand gripe against the tour. Uh, a few months ago, I, it was Phil uh, Tiger had a problem with the tour making a bunch of money off him. The same, it's just it's an identical argument. It, what's what's kind of 
somewhat stunning is that Woods wouldn't even reach out to him and say, so, like poke fun at him. Like I bitched about that back when you were still <laughs> trying to win your sixth tour tournament, right. your tour event. I mean, right. it, it, it was, it, Tiger can be very, very snarky, very witty. Uh, he really uh, reaches out in a, in a loving way. Right. But there's a lot of ways to transcend, transmit a message. Right. I'm surprised he didn't do that. Well, there, there's a, I mean, there's a cold blooded side to Tiger. We all know that. And, <laughs> Yeah. Um, you know, even like his, his PR guy, Glenn Greenspan, who we all knew worked, worked for Tiger and stuck by him through all the different, all the scandals. And, and then when it was, when he fell out of favor, he was just gone and Tiger never reached out to him. Right. Like that's how, as the story goes, like, do you think if you had someone who was, who was by your side through thick and thin for a decade, uh, you would want to at least personally end the relationship. But I think Tiger's somewhat conflict averse. He'd rather have other people do that sort of thing for him. And, Hawk, do you have any insight into that? Why, why, why Tiger let uh, Glenn Glenn go? No idea. I'm not surprised. I mean, uh, there's a similarity, uh, and perhaps the only one between Tiger and Greg Norman. Every relationship seems to end with a burning bridge. Hmm. Uh, uh, obviously, uh, Steinberg's the only guy that's survived at all. Uh, Joe LaCava, I suppose, has a chance in this era of kinder, gentler Tiger. But they all end in flames. They all end with no way across the water and therefore no way back. And, and when, when, you think about, when you think about Steve Williams being at Tiger's wedding and Tiger being at Steve Williams' wedding, who would guess that, you know, 10 years, whatever years later, they would not even be on speaking terms? Now I think they are to some degree, but certainly well, not like what it was. The best man, Tiger's... You, Tiger was Stevie's best man. Yeah. Not, he was not just a passive yeah. attendant. I mean, he, he played a very important role. Like that—that's wild. I don't know too many people that, who won't even talk to their best man. You know, a few years later, like that's a very and, strange turn yeah. in any relationship. And, right, and the relationship disintegrated because Stevie worked for Adam Scott. I mean, is that the whole story? I mean, that's what we were led to believe. That's not really. Well, he uh, was—that was part of it, but. When, when the whole scandal broke after Tiger ran over the fire hydrant, and I, as the story goes, Stevie begged for Tiger to be, make some public statement that, you know, that Steve Williams did, was not a part to this, and he didn't know about it. Because, you know, Steve's a very mm -hmm. black and white, kind of self-righteous guy, and it was just assumed that anyone who was in Tiger's orbit was kind of facilitating all these secret liaisons and everything, and, and, and Steve Williams wanted to be exonerated of that. And of course, Tiger never did that. And I think that was really the source. And uh, Adam Scott was the symptom, not the cause. Well, I've never okay. even believed that, you know, Hawk, to your point earlier about, you know, you're either on the team or off the team. There's no, you know, black or white. There's take a side. Uh, I've never bought that whole Adam Scott thing. I, I think when Steve Williams went to work for Adam Scott that week, he was quitting because you can't work. You know, Adam Scott is the enemy. He's trying to beat me in majors, even though I'm not playing this week. It doesn't matter. You're still you're consorting work, and working for the enemy. And I think Steve Williams had to know uh, that even working that one off, even if he, quote, had permission, which I don't know the ins and the outs of that, right. that was tantamount right. to quitting. Yeah, that's well said. I can't disagree with that. Uh, it certainly always seems there's a uh, a public uh, reason and then one that's uh, the, the real one can be found. Oh, here, here's here. another one that we might want to discuss. How about, uh, how about Butch? I mean, Tiger had all the right. talent in the world, but Butch, by all accounts, including Tiger's, did bring him to another level, and that swing in 2000 speaks for itself. 
Um, and once Butch was out, Butch was out. And I think, I don't really, I, maybe one of you guys recall, I don't recall the ins and the outs. I think Butch quit on Tiger, but I don't recall the details of it. Yeah, it was just, it became a frayed relationship. I think Tiger resented Butch's high profile in the media. And he, he did feel like Butch was making money off of him, which he kind of had to because yeah. Tiger was, was only paying him 50 grand a year. And you know, Butch was leveraging the fame in different ways, but that's with his golf schools and his, the things on the side. And, and somehow that bothered Tiger. Like it was Tiger demand. It's, it's sort of Trumpian. Like he demanded blind loyalty and exclusivity, but he wouldn't give it back. And so, yep. Uh, I think I remember Butch, Butch saying that he was offered a million dollars to write a book about Tiger, not a tell-all at all, more like how I teach Tiger Woods how to play golf or how I did right. while he was still working for him. And, and Butch wisely went to Tiger and said, I've been offered this sum of money. I don't know the exact sum, but I think it might have. A million dollars certainly would be reasonable or believable. And the, and, and the answer from Tiger was, uh, you know, you do what you want, but I'd prefer if you didn't. Well, that means don't do the book if you want to keep your job, and, and and Butch didn't. But that's just how Tiger demands complete fidelity. It's or to use the word of the moment, fealty. <laughs> Butch was an outlier in that he talked freely about Tiger and the relationship and the things that they worked on. Not every day, but certainly I think Butch probably talked himself out of that job to a certain extent. I would also point out, however, that Tiger, there probably wasn't a whole lot more Tiger was going to get out of Butch. Um, well, had, Hawk, how about, how about just keep doing what you're doing? Don't change anything. That's the great don't, question. Don't, put, don't, put on, don't go to the gym so much. Don't put on any weight. Your right. body's perfect. This 2,000 body is perfect. Uh, swing's perfect. Let's just keep a good thing going. But I think, why, would you, why would you change? Because, why? Not if you want a U.S. Open by 15. <laughs> Well, but here's the thing. I mean, Tiger always had to be working towards something. He always had to be improving. That's what got him out of bed every day was this, this quest to get better. He didn't want to just do maintenance and try and keep the same thing. He wanted to get better. And, and that's know, an admirable mindset. It is. That's what, that's what takes you to the mountaintop. But you wish when you, when you get to the mountaintop, you could just stay there. But so many, you know, whether it's Ian Baker Fint, it was Pudrick to some degree. It, that drive to get there, you can't just shut it off. He it's, so believed that thing. If you're not getting better, you're getting worse. And yeah. I mean, I guess as a truism, it's true. But if you're winning U.S. Open by 15, you can win a bunch more U.S. Opens by six and five and four and three and two and one and still catch Big Jack. Well, yeah, that's true. But and Tiger would argue, and Steve Williams has always said this, that, that Tiger in 06, 07 was better than Tiger in 2000, that he had more control, he had more shots, and he may have lost a little bit of explosiveness, but the, the and maybe his ceiling was not quite as high, but the floor was much higher, and he played at a much higher level. And, you know, and he was winning like crazy. He wasn't winning by 15, so... In Tiger's mind, maybe he had to leave Butch to keep evolving. I, I mean, the rest no, of us. I would don't have... think so. I think the, you know the body was giving out on him to some degree. Yeah. Because not nothing to do with Butch, but what Tiger was doing to the body, and then the body couldn't make the swing that Butch loved. We all love so much because it was so beautiful uh, to watch it. The body looked weird, and then a weird swing had to be constructed that would work with that body. Yeah, but it. I mean. It, it is it is frustrating. You're, you're Padraig Harrington, and you you win three majors in 13 or 14 months. Like just keep doing what you're doing. But he doesn't have he he couldn't shut it off either. I mean, there's a lot of guys who 
they just that they're on the never ending quest and mm-hmm. I respect it, even though in hindsight it can look like it can look like folly. But I will say it's fun to excavate all these old tiger stories because we're in this age of hagiography where a lot of there's this whole generation who've who've come up revering Tiger. They weren't that close to him during the years when he was, you know, pretty much the biggest thing in the world, uh, as far as his his fame and the adulation was untouchable. And then the scandals changed everything, and now he's he's come back so many times. He's been humanized, and he tries he tries a little harder to to appear softer and gentler. But we kind of know the real tiger. We lived it for before everyone else came on the scene. So you forget about some of these 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 old battles and these old quirks. It's, How about that quote from uh, Armin in the HBO special where somebody says, "Oh, you know, I'd like to get a piece of tiger. I wish I could get a piece of tiger in his prime." And Armin says, "The fuck you do." It's a classic. It's a classic of the genre. I remember telling Michael on the phone, it's been a couple of years now, that when he was lying on his back in 2017, that summer, and I think he, he looked up to the sky. I mean, he was already like this 12 hours a day, uh, if not 24, uh, and saying, you know, basically coming to terms with the big guy, saying, you get me out of this bed and you get me back on, on green grass, standing up and hitting balls, I'll... I'll change, and I, I think that's what we what we come to uh, enjoy. Uh, might be too strong a word, but the, the the metamorphosis of Tiger into the kinder, gentler sort is an interesting one because you would think that a guy whose blood ran that chilly, twenty four seven. Uh, until he was about uh, what? Until he until his life came to pieces, the transformation was so dramatic. It's hard to understand for those who weren't old enough or part of it before '09. They would have a very difficult time understanding what we're talking about. And if you were incarcerated in 2009 and you didn't hear anything about Tiger, you'd have a hard time believing that he's a vanilla cupcake nowadays i mean it's just so weird the the the, so market and and i don't know how manufactured it is well that i i'm kind of glad you used that word hawk because i mean you know we we all remember the buick ad the nike ads the bridgestone ads the press conferences one of my you know starting points of tiger is you know forget about tiger and the golf course that stands by itself for all time but off the golf course, Tiger's one of the greatest actors the world has ever seen. I really <laughs> do believe that. And uh, so, w- with respect to all that you're saying, m- my, I have a different view. I think Tiger has worked masterfully to manage his public image. And I think it would be impossible for any of us to understand how hard it is to be. And I say this with a lot of empathy, all the empathy that I have, how hard it actually is to be Tiger Woods. Oh, I well, I agree with you on that. I mean, I wouldn't want to, I wouldn't want any of that. I think uh, he's he is to me living proof that fame is a drug, uh, and he overdosed back there in two thousand nine, and uh, the rest is <laughs> the rest is history forgotten. Uh, it's a drug and it's you know, a prison. We, te- we we tend to remember uh, the most real. You know, it's 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 it may end up being the same thing with Phil. Who knows? Although Phil seems to be in a much hotter water than Tiger ever was. I don't know. Which is, which is crazy because Tiger broke actual laws, you know, with his DUI and all that. 
And Phil's right. only broken some unwritten rules, and yet it does feel like like it's, it's in some ways it's going to be harder to feel for Phil to come all the way back, which is wild because, I mean. Tiger was on the back page of the New York Post 20 days in a row. Like, if right. you remember the salaciousness of that scandal and the intensity and the Vanity Fair pictorials of all the girls and all of that stuff, like, it's it's forgotten now, but it was wild. It's like, like it never happened. Yeah. He wishes it was the back page because that's the sports page. He was on the front page. He was the front page, right. That's well said. Like, um, And I guess, you know... Tiger was lucky. That was just before the dawn of Twitter. Really, like I, I didn't, I didn't. That's what caught me on Twitter in early 2010. Like he, he just that scandal came out just before the height of, of social media, and I think that that helped helped it kind of fade away in the collective memory a little faster. But like for those of us who you know lived through it, like it was it's hard to believe you could ever put that in the rearview mirror. But Tiger has pretty effectively. Uh, it's. Hawk, you've got a you've got a good rapport with Phil. Uh, I don't know if you've been talking to him at all in in more recent years, but what would you advise Phil if you could? If if you're, I mean, you're a reporter, and you might say that's not quote my place, but you know, we also have personal relationships with a lot of these people. What would you say to him? I tell him that he, I, I tell him with uh, after probably I probably need a couple shots of whiskey before I walk into the room, but uh, I tell him that he has to completely. Disclose. He has to tell the complete truth. Same thing with Norman. I mean, Norman makes that ridiculous comment about Khashoggi. Greg Norman was just too ignorant to understand the, the, the magnitude of that situation as it related to so many people across the world. As for Phil, you come out, you say, I've got a problem. Actually, I've got a couple of problems, but... Uh, I, want, I need to settle this one first. Uh, I think it's fairly evident that money played a huge role. I don't want to get a suit here. But uh, although if Alan can't get a suit, then nobody can. Uh, <laughs> the jury's out on that one. It's, it's early days. Right, well, there's still plenty of time. But I, I think you've got to come completely clean. You've got, to exp you've got to bare your soul. You've got to stand naked in front of the world and say, Hi, my name is Phil, and I got a problem. What what mechanism and, would you do it in? Would you have a press conference? Would you do sixty minutes with Jim Nance? What what would you do? Is Barbara Water still alive? <laughs> I, I don't even know. <laughs> that's, that's a voice. <laughs> I, I I you know I would try to do it. You know how when it's really something really important, you don't text or email. You pick up the phone. I think you take it. Uh, or, or if it's a really big deal, you do it in person. I think he's got to do it. I think he, he's got to do it with. I love the idea of doing it on sixty minutes, or, or, or like a blue curtain, a it. big blue curtain he'll emerge from, and, and just you got to see him. You got to be able to see him. You got to be able to watch every yeah. uh, every facial tick and how he reacts to everything. And he's got to he's got to make him. He's got to avail himself to some very very difficult questions. Uh, until then, he's he's really not going to be forgiven. Look, twenty all the the, the hardcore Phil Legion is never going to think he did anything wrong. They're like the folks who stormed the Capitol. Okay, mm -hmm. then you've got the people who, the 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 that don't really care, that don't really know what he did. They just appreciate him for his golf and all the enjoyment he brought to them as a player 
And then you've got that middle sector, I don't know, 50, 60, 70% of all people who might be interested in such a, a matter probably need to see how Phil reacts in his first public appearance, regardless of the context, to see how he reacts to it all. Hey, that's why he didn't show up at Southern. He couldn't show up at Southern Hills. That was not possible. It certainly wasn't even remotely practical. You don't show up at a golf tournament uh, and turn it into a, a confessional. Right. I mean, this is, this was what he, he, his problems were multifold. He committed, uh, he committed crimes uh, of code, and who knows where this thing's going to end. I mean, uh, he, the, the, the way he talked about the tour alone was probably, probably his biggest sin, right? I mean, he made all this money over 30 years on the PGA Tour, and now he's basically, well, not quite defaming it, but doing his best. And... Uh, well, it's I it's think, it's pretty rich if you're over in Saudi Arabia, taking a bloated appearance fee to accuse the tour of obnoxious greed, like that. You're, you're right. sort of telling on yourself in that in that scenario. Like, I, I hear what you're saying. Like that, especially from his colleagues. Like that's the original sin is that, you know, that Phil was was essentially working against their own interests because you know if this if this Saudi tour succeeds. And they get a big TV deal, and they, they start signing up big corporate partners like Rolex. Like that's going to siphon money away from the tour, the PGA Tour. And all of a sudden, like Phil is directly threatening the livelihoods of most of the guys on tour. Now, some of the top stars could could get cherry picked and play in Saudi Arabia, but all the guys who are thirty to two hundred on the money list, like they're not going to have that opportunity. You wouldn't think. And so, he was he was threatening their livelihoods, and that's why the players are upset. Understood, but but it seems to run. Uh, it's run all through the golf community. I mean, Dave Stockton saying that he wasn't missed at the PGA Champions dinner last night. That's Dave Stockton is not exactly the meanest guy who ever lived. <laughs> <Yeah>. And <laughs> it, it's like, no, he wasn't missed. It's it's <laughs> it's almost like everybody has a license to take a shot at the guy. And he does he deserve it? I, I yeah, I suppose it's pretty easy to make a case that he does. Um, what he did flew in the face of, of all rational behavior as it relates to being a professional golfer. Uh, never mind the fact that he's made what for how much? Uh, a lot of money. He's made $800 million over the course of his 30 year career. At least that was the estimate I saw. That's uh, for him to have any uh, perceived uh, any real financial problems uh, that might've led to this uh, dalliance or this relationship with the Saudis. Boy, it just it, it runs deep and it runs wide, and we don't know where the river ends. Very interesting, uh, Hawk. How are you uh, consuming? You know, you're, you're you're not on the road as much as you used to be. How are you consuming your golf these days? Do you read? I'm Do you a watch? TV column. I'm writing a TV column. Mm -hmm. I just started about two months ago. I have a media column. I should right. call it a TV column. Uh, I write for Morning Read. I write once right. a week. Uh, I'd love more work, but uh, it's not easy. It's not easy to find work, uh, uh, especially when you are known as a maybe a bit of a sniper. Or, uh, <laughs> you know, I want to write columns. I like to write. Uh, I don't think the game has nearly enough of that stuff. Yep. And 
You know, that's that's what's missing from the old days is the critical element. Yep. Everybody's in bed with everybody else now. Yep. It's it's really it's not covered the way the NFL is covered. Uh, I mean, yeah. it's 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 just not covered like like the rest of professional sports are covered. I mean, my, Michael, you live in God. The Sixers are are dirt right now. I right. mean, they lose to the right. to the who was it? Miami the Heat. Heat. I, I mean, they, they get trashed. Right. Uh, they did everything they could to put together a team that could make a run for the NBA championship. Right. They were unsuccessful. Now they'll run Doc out of town. That. We don't, right, right, exactly. And we, we, we don't have that type of of objectivity or journalistic sensibility in golf. It's it kind of weird because when the players, when, the, when we had actually more access to the players and a better rapport with them, it was actually easier to be honest in our reporting about what they were actually like. And now that we don't really know them because they're, you know, they're, they're so quarantined, it's harder to, and the coverage is far more bland. It's, it's an odd, I've never thought of it that way, but it is a very odd conundrum as you've just described. Well, because so much, so much of the coverage is comes from the tour itself. And, and they, yes, yes. you go to a tournament now and there's more PGA tour social media staffers and there are actual reporters. And then, there is an element of the golf media that, you know, the term fanboy has been attached to them and, and whether that's fair or not, I mean, it does exist. So, uh, there's for the people who are doing like old school journalism, you're in the minority. There's, there's all these other yes. elements you have to you compete with. And from the agent standpoint and maybe the players themselves, they, they know it's much safer to go with the approved channels, which is the tour or, or the, these other channels where, you know, they're not really trying to do journalism. It's more about it's experiential and it's more about kind of being, being broed up with the players and if they've obviously found audiences and, and that's great, but it does make it harder for people who want to do kind of more serious objective journalism because uh, the players are only going to give so much time. They only have so much bandwidth for you know, quote unquote media. And if, if they have these other homes, these other safe harbors, there's really nothing in it for them to, to give time to people who might want to be more critical or more objective or have a little more of a jaundiced eye. So it, it is a challenge for, for those of us who are left who are trying to cover the sport in a more serious way, uh, sort of getting squeezed out uh, in, in certain situations. And uh, you, so you have to find a different way to do the job uh, that's maybe not as access-based. But as you're saying, Michael, then you don't get to know the players. There's not that intimacy, and it creates its own challenges. Hawk, back when you were doing that Great Goose show uh, on, on Golf Channel, was there ever any sort of limitation put on you, either spoken or unspoken, about what your Never. view could be? Never. Well, I think I had one thing removed from the air in the rebroadcast because uh, it had to do with my quitting drinking. Uh, the, one of the shows was taped. On a, I don't remember. You know, I was never an AA guy, right? I just quit. Uh, become uh, I, I had uh, I had stretched my childhood as long as it could go, <laughs> and I uh, made mention to it. Uh, and because Grey Goose makes vodka for a living, that was the only thing <laughs> that was ever cut in 140 episodes or whatever it was. Right. There was never an opinion that was deemed. Uh, either inappropriate or too dangerous or bad for business. That was, I know that the, the folks who uh, made the deal with the vodka company worried about 
uh, I think me and, and maybe a couple of the other guys, and there were some changes personnel-wise on the show that made it a little softer as time went on. But uh, I was never told by Kevin Schultz, my wonderful uh, producer for all four years, can't say that, can't do that. He, you couldn't take it far enough for him, and uh, that was a wonderful experience. I mean, for, for people who don't even know what we're talking about, this was the Grey Goose 19th hole. It was this lively show on the golf channel basically monday through wednesday when the, we didn't have tournament golf you could fill those gaps and it had a little spice and it was really debating the issues of the day and it was kind of like the sports reporters remember that show or yeah. a little like pardon Seriously. my interruption you know, it was point it, point counterpoint on 60 minutes for those who remember that yeah and you know now on the golf channel like the major weeks is great you know there's there's there is a lot of opinion because they, they do the live from but otherwise week to week I don't think they're looking for that 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 kind of that kind of edgy content. You know, they're they're kind of a broadcast right. partner of the tour, and I, it doesn't seem like they're welcoming criticism of the product. And uh, you know, it's that's kind of what we were talking about earlier. Like the, the whole tone of the golf media has shifted because back when we were there in the '90s and the 2000s, it was a lot of newspaper guys, and it's a competitive business, and everyone was was fighting and clawing to get great stories and to beat each other and. And there really, it really was a, a beat like you're talking about, Hawk. Like if uh, if you're covering the Yankees, you know, there's a lot of people and, and everyone. Right. And there's an energy there. And and then, of course, there was structural changes to the whole industry that affected everyone, but especially on the golf beat because as the big city newspapers started contracting in the 2000s, the first guy to go was was, was the, the golf reporter because they still had to cover their football, right. basketball, and baseball teams. Right. But, like, I remember I used to roll up and, and – Every big city newspaper had a really talented writer, you know, from, from Dallas, from Orlando, from L.A., uh, obviously mm -hmm. Chicago, like Cleveland. Cleveland, you name it. Like these guys covered the game full time and you'd go in the press room and there was big egos and there was a lot of talent. And it was it was cool, man. Like I loved that energy. Mm -hmm. uh, and one by one, they started to disappear and and they've never really been replaced. No. Hawk, you I, remember I, back. Let me let me throw this guy at you. You remember back in '99 when the when the four guys, the Brookline Four, rebelled against the uh, oh yeah, the the PGA practice of not paying the players. Sure. You remember how hard Lincecum and all those Chicago columns just ripped the players. I mean, it was uh, it, it was a, it was a little they were driving a little bit blind. I mean, there were there, it was a realistic issue in that there were two sides to it, and ultimately the players sort of got their way. They they found a nice compromise and money would be donated to charity. And that's a practice that continues to this day. But those guys were, oh my God, they were, they were uh, a quartet. They were the collective pariah in the golf universe there for, for a good month. Yep. Yep. Uh, Cause I grew up uh, admiring uh, Dave Anderson at the times, you know, and then later got to know him. Did you have a guy like that? You know, I worked with John Stedman at the mm -hmm. very beginning, uh, a little loopy, uh, not nearly as grounded as Dave. Uh, I was so lucky when I was at the Baltimore News American from early 84 till it closed in 80, uh, May of 86. I mean, those were great two and a half years. Had a lot of guys, Bernie Miklas, Jeff Gordon, uh, Mark Snyder on the deck. We just had not always, not 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 ton of big names, and many of them have probably long since left the business. But uh, boy, I, you know, we used to cover a lot of games, uh, NFC East games, and I knew all the guys up in your market, 
Bill Lyons and Mark Cram. I mean, there was there were so many great newspaper guys. I I was one of those uh, dweebs who really took it upon myself to read uh, all the newspapers I could get my hands on, all the sports sections I could get my hands on, and guys like Ron Borges or uh, Mark Hyman. I mean, there's a million of them. They were they were they were all great writers. I never really had a Dave Anderson until I until I got to Golf World slash Golf Digest, and there was Dave Anderson. Yeah, <laughs> my you know my favorite, like ever, like many of us, Jenkins was was Jenkins was God, kind of like Clapton back in the old days. Mm-hmm. You know? uh, Jenkins was God. I wonder what Jenkins would think of the kinder, gentler Tiger. <laughs> you call bullshit on are you kidding me yeah. that's not even a question Huck. Wait, was it you was it you who wrote on the subway well jenkins says god uh or maybe that was somebody else i i, I might have i might have grabbed this can of spray paint <laughs> I, I he he was he was critical he was to the point he was a master and uh you know as hard as rick riley tried we'll never have another one yeah. not like that i I'm, i met a guy today who uh, Tulsa native who, who just a fan, but loved Jenkins so much. And, um, I can't remember if it was the Oh one open or the Oh seven PGA, but, um, brought a backpack that had like four Dan Jenkins books and somehow talked his way into the press room and got Jenkins to sign them all. I was like, that is an awesome story. He was more excited to meet Dan Jenkins than he was to, to meet any of the players in the field. Like what was that here? That was tonight. Yeah. Well, yeah. T- Oh, tonight. Yeah. Yeah, just a, yeah. I had a little book signing thing, and well, uh, who did he want? Who did he want sign him? He wanted you to sign the Jenkins books. No, no, he just told me because oh, we were he was story. we were just talking. He's just a, a lover of of golf literature, and and uh, I was like, man, that's mad respect. Like it's pack a backpack full of books. Like you're going to the library, but uh, well, Tulsa is Jenkins country. Yeah, that's right. Fort Worth, Tulsa, the whole Southwest, the whole Southwest yeah. is Jenkins. He owned that SEC. Yeah, and he, he said something to me. This guy that I met, he said, a lot of guys can write about about golf, but Jenkins can write about golf, whiskey, sex, and chicken fried steak. <laughs> <laughs> I said, I could maybe do two of those at most. So. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> no, absolutely. Yeah. I, I mean, the, the, some of the loudest, some of the greatest LOLs of my life uh, were courtesy of Dan Jenkins. Yeah, he. Um, it was more fun probably to just sit next to him in the press room than actually to read his stuff because a lot of stuff he couldn't get into print. He would mutter through this, the corner of his mouth, right. and I, you could always hear tittering around him because he was just so naturally funny and right, sharp. Right. Hawk, yeah. did you ever know a cops reporter in Baltimore named John Wade Jennings? He was on the News no. American. He, he 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 he. When the News American closed, he came to the Inquirer. He was a golf bum like like us, and uh, but he was a cops reporter, and he he. he He's just a natural. Cops love talking to him. And one year I went to the, uh, some kind of sheep. I don't think Alan was there. Jaime was there. There was a Sheba's get together for writers. Hawk, you might have been there. I, I think I'd remember if you were. But it was in Carmel. We sat in a circle and our, our legs are crossed, our arms are crossed. And, you know, we're doing the yoga thing. And, and we were told <laughs> to close our eyes and, you know, and go into some happy place. And I could not stop laughing because I was thinking about this John Wade Jennings from, from Baltimore who had come up to, to the, uh, to, to the inquire, he came to work in a t-shirt. And if he saw me there contemplating, you know, the meaning of golf and this kind of thing, he would have laughed his ass off. And anyway, so that made me laugh uncontrollably. And then when I was asked what was so funny and I, 
maybe said something, and they said, you know, they congratulated for be, for me to being in touch with my mirth. But you know, this this is the Shiva's Iron Society. Shiva's Iron Society. That's what I was <laughs> yeah. trying to say. Thank yeah, you. I knew uh, that. But we were lucky. John Allen's a little younger, but we've been lucky that we've been able to. We caught the. I mean, I literally caught the last yes. of typewriters. And uh, as you said, those guys ripped uh, Duval and uh, and who was it, uh, Tiger and O'Meara, and whomever else. Yeah. Just yeah, ripped I don't know. Because they I don't didn't like it. The they didn't like it, and they're going to let you know. Well, flip in the face of of what people were used to golf is a golf is a, is a, is a, is an old soul game. You know, it's, yep. it doesn't like change. Nope. Uh, it, it, it doesn't uh, take kindly to people who, who step out of line, even if they mean uh, to improve things or do things for the better. That's part of the reason why these rival golf leagues are, are considered anywhere between farcical and uh, another F word. I think, uh, there's a there's a certain sense of reluctance to mess with the formula that has worked for so long. Uh, sometimes the Palmer player Nicholas stuff can get a little old because it it is 50 years old, and, and the oldsters will never uh, give the the, the, the Woodses and the Mickelsons and perhaps even down the road the McElroys and the Spees the credit they deserve. But that's part of the beauty of the game is that it changes somewhat reluctantly and slowly and uh when you come along and try to flip the, the game on its ear you're you're probably going to get slapped upside the head for it <laughs> that's extremely well said yeah i have to say it, it's such a pleasure just talking about the old yep. days i don't know how many listeners are, are going to really go down this path with us <laughs> i don't but... know but that that last thing you said hawk was so deeply true i completely agree with every word you said yeah i think so well thank you it's uh, it's really fun to re- to relive all this stuff, John. I re- appreciate your time and, and your insight, and uh, this is this has been a pleasasure. Um, before we go, um, all mine. No, no, all Be- mine, my friends. Before we go, I'm gonna uh, give a shout out to our corporate sponsors at Parpoints, who uh, you know they've in- invented this ingenious scoring app, and uh, the, the 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 two founders become friends of Michael and mine. In fact, we dined with them in Tulsa this evening, and. Um, it's just it's just a really cool way to, as you get back into golf, Hawk, and you're, you're relearning the game, you might you might you might pick up a new trick because it does add a different layer of, of sort of intrigue and, and strategy. Have you heard of this thing, Hawk? Par points. I see these ads on for all these apps and things you can uh, that can keep track of your own game. Uh, you, you know, I. Well, well, I'm a little. I've got a lot of that old soul in me too. I already told my buddies I'm going to kick, come back and kick your ass as soon as I'm ready to go. <laughs> I believe it. Yeah. We'll, we'll, we'll try and get you up to date on the new school stuff. But uh, anyway, Johnny, th- do, thanks for your time. Let's make this an ongoing conversation. And uh, Michael. Alan. As always, it's a blast. Um, this has been Loved a... Loved it, guys. Yeah, it's been, it's been good stuff. This has been fun. This has been another Fire Drill podcast. We'll be doing this off and on all week from... From Tulsa, we're going to get Jeff Ogilvy back on the line for at least one more and maybe two and maybe a few more surprise guests. Hawk, you sure heard Ogilvy the other day. He's talking about Tiger being the best player at that Melbourne President's Cup. And to that, body's falling apart. He's playing the best young players in the game. But Ogilvy's making the point he's the only guy who actually really knows how to play golf on that course, you know, a course that good and shape the shots and actually play. It was so cool to hear him talk golf. Ogilvy can talk forever too. Yeah, you you might have to. You might run out of tape or whatever with him. <laughs> bandwidth. Yeah, bandwidth. That's it. 
Oh, well, I Very think we're bright. Yeah, for sure. All right. Well, I'm, I'm going to send the listeners home, but uh, thanks to everyone who's been on this little journey with us. Thanks, Alan. We'll, yeah, we'll keep doing this. And, Thank uh, you, guys. Gents, Take good care. night. All right. Bye. Put another log on the fire Nobody here is getting tired 